This is a Federal News Network podcast. The Air Force says time is up for modernizing for the next phase of warfare. This week, the service's leaders sounded that alarm that the Air Force needs to change the way it operates and structures itself to meet the threats. Federal News Network Scott Mossioni joins me with what he's hearing at the Air Force Association Conference. And Scott, let's begin with the main concern. What are the brass worried about? Sure. So the brass are worried about mostly China being a major threat. And this is something that we've heard many times over at this point. However, uh, at this point, they're saying that the red lights are blinking, that it's time that the Air Force modernize. If it doesn't modernize, then it's going to run into some serious problems. What they're pointing to is that, that China has either reached parity in some technological areas or it has actually surpassed the Air Force in some technological areas. Now, it's not all technological areas, just some of them, not to be completely alarmed. But uh, what the Air Force is saying is that this should be a Sputnik moment for them at a time when they need to really change and become the Air Force that they've said they need to be within the, over the past five years or so. Sure, I guess what the Chinese don't invent, they simply steal. And does this get down to the level of the jets and the platforms themselves? Yeah, that's actually a big part of what they're they're reconsidering at this point. What they want to do is right now they have seven platforms that they use for fighter fleets at play all the time. Those include, you know, F-22s, F-35s, those sorts of things. What they want to do is pare that down from seven fighter fleets into a smaller force that's more modernized and more, well, when I say smaller, I mean just smaller amount of platforms, not necessarily the amount of, of actual jets out there, but one ones that are more modernized and ones that actually work toward what the Air Force is trying to do. So what they'll have is a uh, F-22 that is modernized in what they call the next generation air defense. And then they'll have the F-35 with a technical refresh on it. The F-35 engine needs some repair, and they, they said that they're going to be working on that. As of last week, they had 46 grounded F-35s for engine-related needs, so something that they're going to need to pick up the slack for. After that, they're going to have F-15s, E and EXs, and they're going to try and get rid of these uh, C and D models. And finally, they're going to reinvent the F-16 as a good and capable fighter, is what they've said, uh, quote-unquote. Now, that means that they're going to have to divest from other jet forms as well. That includes the A-10, which has been a mainstay for quite a while, something that's going to take some congressional fighting. Got it. With respect to the F-22, just a detail question there. There's only a small number of those, 150 or something like that. Originally, it was planned to be much more. They're not talking about reviving that factory and building more of those, are they? What they're doing is either uh, recapitalizing some of those or using some of the more modern ones that they have at this point. And what about some of the other platforms? I mean, the B-52 <laughs> the bombers and so forth, that's kind of up in the air too, no pun intended. Exactly. Well, you know, the, now that you mentioned the B-22, that's actually something that they're actually looking into. They use three different bombers at this point. What they want to do is uh, make this pair it down to two, once again, pairing down, and they're going to reinvent the B-52. They think the frame still has a lot that they can use with, and then obviously they're going to use that B-2 that they've been working on for quite a while now. What they said is they can't get enough bombers in the air, and uh, uh, the, the point is, is to get more up there with a less cost. 
And if you recall, lots of B-52s were shredded on purpose as part of an agreement with Russia. If they only had those old planes now, they could do something with them. We're speaking with Federal News Network's Scott Massioni, and there must be a cost and a budgetary implication to all of this recapitalizing or retiring and rebuilding. Do they know how they're going to pay for it all? Of course, yeah. And and one other thing I wanted to mention before we move on, they're also looking at buying that KC-46, you know, they've had problems with for quite some time. They want to move that forward and also create another KC, what they're calling KCY at this point, that has not put out any requirements yet. Uh, They're looking at at it as something that will be a solid sort of plane that they can get out early that's already basically something they can develop pretty quickly. Then the KCZ, which is going to be the next step, will be a more developmental one that'll have some of the new bells and whistles on it. Now, when it comes to actually paying for this, the Air Force has not had a increase in its budget, really. Uh, Well, the Defense Department at writ large has not had an increase in its budget. The Air Force may be getting more of the proportion of the defense budget, but the defense budget itself is not getting a lot of bumps either in this year or the next year to come. So what they're going to have to do is pare down, as we said, some of the the legacy systems that they have, things like the A-10 and other things like that. So what they have coming up in the future as well is what they're calling the nuclear bow wave. They need to pay for ways to modernize their nuclear triad. They own two legs of that stool. So it's going to be quite expensive. These divestments, they say, are key and something that they say they can't push off till next year anymore. The Air Force Secretary Frank Kendall said the cost of these aircraft are consuming precious resources that they don't uh, need to be consuming. So that's one of the ways that they plan on paying for this besides finding other costs that they can at, at times. One of the big issues is the apparent missile building program that China is undertaking, nuclear missile building program. We have our old ICBMs, about 450 of them. Congress seems to stop and start, depending on the political situation, the recapitalization of the whole ICBM infrastructure. And are they, is the Air Force going to go for a continuation of that and some steadiness in the funding for for rebuilding that part? That's what they're hoping for, and that's one of those alarm bells that they're trying to sound with this. Uh, what One of the things that they've sort of thrown out there is the possibility of a separate fund to take care of this nuclear bow wave, maybe something like OCO, the Overseas Contingency Operation, if you remember in the past for the Iraq and Afghanistan wars. That would be a way of kind of paying for this separately and maybe out of different sort of tax dollars or something else, um, you know, just something that, that Congress can put in a different kitty and, and maybe think about it differently. And another question I was wondering, though, did they lay out at the conference you're at there, at the echoey Gaylord conference room, a doctrine change? I mean, they talk about this China threat, but with all of this changeover of the nature of the force, did they outline the doctrine that they're following behind this, what they think the nature of that threat is? Right. Well, you know, what they're following is the national defense strategy, which came out in 2018. And right now, that's something that's being relooked at and changed, but they're not expecting it to change too much. Now, obviously, the biggest uh, part of this is China. However, the degree to what the threat of China is is obviously debated by scholars and policymakers and everyone of, of that ilk. Uh, you know, some people say that the China threat is being used for uh, more money for the Defense Department. Uh, some people say the defense strategy is taking up uh, just too many different uh, threats at once. You know, they're taking into account two near peer competitors, then two other secondary competitors in Iran and North Korea, and then obviously extremism and terrorism. So that's quite a portfolio to handle all for one department. Federal News Network, Scott Massioni. Thanks so much. Thank you. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I am your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. 
Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Vice Admiral Cutler Dawson. Cutler has had an incredible career serving our country for 35 years in the Navy, where he attained the rank of Vice Admiral. During his service, he had numerous assignments afloat and ashore, including Commander, Second Fleet, Striking Fleet Atlantic, and in Washington at the Pentagon and on Capitol Hill, where he was the Navy's Chief of Legislative Affairs. Immediately following his retirement from active duty in 2004, he became the president and CEO of Navy Federal Credit Union, the world's largest credit union, where he served for 14 years. Under his leadership, Navy Federal grew from 2 million to 8 million members. Phenomenal. Cutler, welcome and thanks for joining me. Thank you, Shane. You've had a fascinating career across both military and the private sector. Can you tell us a little bit more about your background and your professional journey? Well, I started out at the Naval Academy where I graduated in 1970. And then, as you mentioned, spent 35 years in the Navy um, with uh, six actual, actual uh, afloat commands. Uh, the first one was when I was 27 years old. I didn't know enough to be scared of anything, and it was uh, probably one of the highlights of my career. Um, and then after I retired after 35 years, I went to uh, work at Navy Federal Credit Union as the CEO, where I spent my next 14 years. Um, I'm, I'm currently retired and enjoying life, and um, it's been a great run for me. How would you describe your leadership style and how's that developed over the years? My style has been quite con consistent. Um, I believe, and I've learned this in the Navy, that you have to go to the deck plates uh, to see what is going on. And you have to learn what your people do and how they do it so you can help them to be better at it and more efficient and more productive. Um, it's um, something that you need to do all the time. Um, I remember I used to tell folks that um, you don't want to retreat to your cabin. And what I mean by that is um, the longer you're in a position, the less you think you have to get out and about. But that should be the opposite. You should get out and about more because people change, situations change, and you've got to figure out a way to get to them and find out what they're doing and where, what you can do to help them. Uh, I. We'll talk a little bit more about your book, but I read it um, from C to the C-suite. Fantastic read. You talk about the deck plates in that um, as well. I would encourage everyone to get a copy of this and read some more detail about going to the deck plates. Cutler, who was the most impactful leader in your life and what quality did you admire about them? I had numerous while I was in the Navy, but uh, the quality that, that I enjoyed the most was the leaders that got to know me as an individual and that they cared about me. And I could tell that they cared about me. And they were not only my leaders, but they were my mentors. And um, I remember um, one particular one, Bill Schiffer, when I had my first assignment at the Pentagon, um, I would go in to see him with my problem of the day. And I knew that he had numerous problems of his own, but he would stop and he would focus on me and he would make me feel like I was the most important person in his world. Um, and I, I tried to do that um, throughout my career, but really it's about caring for your people. Cutler, in reading your book, there was a quote you used that you used to inspire those people that work for you. And it really got my attention. And it was, 
it was you are the captain of your own ship. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about what that means and how it was useful to you and the leaders you were developing. Uh, absolutely. Um, what I mean by captain of your own ship, when you are the captain of a ship, sometimes you're in the middle of the ocean and you don't have anybody to turn to to make decisions. You don't have anybody to turn to ask, what should I do now? You have to be the captain of that ship. And I, I translated that um, into, let's say, Navy Federal's organization, where I would tell branch managers that I said, you are the captain of the ships of Navy Federal. You're the ones that are facing the, the members or customers, as others call them, every day. And you have to make decisions without a lot of guidance, in some cases, and without a lot of time. So be the captain of your own ship. Step up, uh, make decisions, uh, do what you think is right, and you never can go wrong. I think that is so important. And you have to give your people a little bit of latitude to take some risk as well, because there is risk for them in doing that and risk to your organization. That's right. And, and I mentioned that I took command of my first ship uh, with five years in the Navy and I was 27 years old. Well, my boss had 32 years in the Navy and um, his, his guidance to me when I first met him was, Cutler, you do the right thing and I'll back you up all the way. What a wonderful way to, to spend an assignment with, uh, with backup and, and guidance like that. What, what great, great advice. Uh, it's clear leadership is a topic you're passionate about. You wrote the book we mentioned before, um, From C to C-Suite. Can you tell us a little bit about that project? Yes, when I was at Navy Federal, I would tell sea stories. Uh, as parables to get my point across. And um, folks would tell me, Cutler, we like your stories. It gives us a picture of what you're trying to tell us. Now, what else are they going to say? They work for me, but uh, uh, I took it as a compliment, and it was. And my wife encouraged me to write a book, and I needed a co-author to help me. And I found a lady named Taylor Keelan, who was the perfect, perfect co-author. She turned in my stories into wonderful chapters um, that I'm very proud of. Where can listeners find a copy? Well, you can get it on Amazon uh, and you can also uh, get it on the Naval Institute website. Uh, and I might add that um, any proceeds from the book, Navy Federal uses uh, to give to charity. Fantastic. Cutler, thank you very much. Really enjoyed your time and your lessons and in leadership and sharing with us your life story. And, and uh, I've learned a lot both from talking to you today and reading your book. And thank you very much for your time. It's my pleasure. And I, I, I would like to add one thing if I could, Shane. Um, during my assignments in Washington, D.C., I gained the utmost respect for the civilians that work here every day. They're hardworking, they're dedicated, and they, they have my eternal gratitude. Uh, I got to come and go from the Pentagon. They stayed every day and worked in Washington when I got to go out and um, enjoy being at sea. Perfect. Thank you. Yeah, we, WEPA serves civilian federal employees, but your comment is well taken because the interaction between the two is is continuous, it's nonstop, and it's critical. So uh, the career civil servants, as well as career military, uh, our country would not be where it is today without them. I totally agree. And, and I can tell you from the US Navy standpoint, 
we couldn't operate like we do without them being the backbone of what we do. Thank you very much for your time today, Cutler. And to everyone listening to Lessons in Leadership podcast, we'll see you next time. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus, and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.